0: Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Covent Garden service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you, Georgie, very much. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, great to have you here. And just to add to Georgie's welcome, uh, warm welcome for those of you that are here for the first time. Warm welcome for those of you that haven't been around for a while. And uh, we have people who've been away for a year who are back. And I've even spoken to people who've not been at Christchurch. They've been out of London for a lot longer than that. So very warm welcome to you all. Hope you have a great afternoon with us. Um, I hope you don't mind, but I'd like to start by asking uh, for you guys to pray for me tomorrow. I have uh, Premier Radio is uh, interviewing me. They do a series of interviews, uh, hour-long interviews, uh, for, with Christian leaders, this is why I wanted prayer really, an hour is long enough to hang yourself if you're not careful what you're saying. And uh, they, do, they do these um, profiles and it's called Profile of Christian leaders and they want to talk about your faith journey and then the things that are particularly important to you at this point in time. So to be honest it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about starting services across London, to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, to talk about cultural renewal and social renewal and spiritual renewal, all the things that really matter to us. So I'd just be really grateful that uh, if you think of me at least, uh, shoot up a prayer and pray that what I would say would be helpful and encouraging and strengthening. To lots and lots of people, it's a pre-record, so it doesn't go out live tomorrow. Um, but uh, it all gets put in the can if you like tomorrow afternoon. So I'd be really grateful if you happen to think of me if you pray for that. Uh, that would be fantastic. Okay, we're um, we're at just at the start of a very, very practical series. It's practical because we're teaching through the Book of Proverbs, and Proverbs is the most practical book in the whole Bible. So today we'll get down to some real brass tacks. Uh, I wonder first though whether you recognise this guy here. First slide please, Nate. uh, He's been in the news quite a bit this week. Uh, He is one of the leading sportsmen of our generation, was the uh, English captain. He uh, broke shed loads of records and he retired about Tuesday this week. So... When somebody retires, there's all sorts of talk, you know, you reflect back on their career, you talk about them and so on. Here's what he said about himself in his final interview. He said, I was never the most talented sportsman. I actually tweeted this quote earlier this week and somebody came back to me and said, I read the first half of the quote and I thought you were talking about yourself. (laughs) Uh, I was never the most talented sportsman. Uh, I could have been, but I wasn't. But I can look back and say I became the best player I could have become, and that to me was a really striking quote, uh, because I suspect that pretty much all of us in this room would have at least an aspect of our life where we'd like to be able to say that, not necessarily sport, it's maybe things much more important uh, than sport, it may be a professional skill we're wanting to develop, it may be a part of who we're wanting to become, it might be a dream uh, that we have, Uh, but um, all of us if we look deeply enough into our hearts, we'll say there is parts of life where maybe I don't feel like I've been given a huge amount. I'm not as smart as some, I'm not as good-looking as others, I'm not as eloquent as that person over there, but I would love to take the raw material I've got and do the very best that I could do with it. Now, interestingly, and this is Alistair Cook, he is, or was until Tuesday, the England cricket captain, the the consensus of all the pundits was his outstanding talent was self discipline. And he actually talked about it as his greatest skill. Interesting that self discipline could have that sort of effect. Well, maybe you'd say that's just a one off. Let me give you another example. And let's jump from sport to the arts Michelangelo. Michelangelo was just like this extraordinary painter architect sculptor and writer just about everything he touched he created world-class renaissance leading stuff let me give you a couple of examples this is the Sistine Chapel roof Uh, and I I don't think I've got the skill to really explain the depth or the uh, amazingness of it but it is an extraordinary and very beautiful roof and of course painted you know very close they are all up on scaffolding but has remarkable perspective and scale to it as well. And you may think, well, he's painted one, he's done one world-class piece, but then actually this is, Michelangelo as an architect. This is St. Peter's in Rome. If you've ever been to Rome, you will know a bit like St. Paul's in London, that almost wherever you go, you can see on the horizon is this majestic, beautiful building. And if you've ever been to Rome and you've been inside it, you will find that it is even more beautiful or just as beautiful, at least inside, as it is outside crumbs michelangelo painter architect and then next slide please this is the young david and this was the piece of sculpture that defined the renaissance done by the same guy michelangelo again just how talented was he well here is what he said about himself he said if people knew how hard i had to work to gain my mastery it would not seem so wonderful In other words, Michelangelo hadn't just mastered his craft, but he'd mastered himself as well. And I think that both these examples give a different perspective on self-discipline. I mean, if I just stood up and said, guys, really exciting news, we're talking about self-discipline this afternoon, then I suspect most of you would say, well, can I come back next week then? And, you know, can we just finish now? Because the Uh, The ideas that go with self-discipline tend to be its rules, its regulations, it could be pedantic, it's at least the stuff that I don't really like. And I think what these illustrations suggest is that self-discipline actually can be an incredibly powerful tool to help us do and become the sort of people that we want to be. It gives a different perspective. Let's have a look at a couple of the proverbs that talk about self-discipline. Uh, Thank you, Nate. Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. Better someone with self-control than one that takes a city. Solomon is saying here, it is better to conquer your own personal self than it is the enemies that are out there. To do something great in public life is one thing. He says it's even more important to do something great in private life. Interesting. Interesting let me give you another proverb like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control or self-discipline and the picture here is of an ancient city without walls now if you're in an ancient city you want walls because if you if you've not got walls you could wake up in the middle of the night and either a dangerous animal or an enemy could be at the bottom of your bed and, of course, you're suddenly, you know, they have invaded. They've taken what was precious. And Solomon switches this idea to you and me and says, each of us is like a city. Your inner, the inner man, inner woman, the inner person is like a city. But if we do not exercise self-discipline, we will find that our city gets invaded we will find that there are beasts or enemies that are get in there that we do not want in there and it's like a city whose walls have fallen down so solomon is saying get self discipline and you'll find if we had time to go right through the bible the bible has a credibly positive perspective on self discipline so here's what I'd like to do in the few minutes that we've got first of all I'd like to ask where should we best use self-discipline? Where can it most powerfully be used in our lives? Then I'm going to ask, why is it so hard to exercise self-discipline? I'm looking across the room here. I know a good number of you. You're a pretty accomplished crowd. You're clearly self-disciplined in some areas, but I can tell by the attention you're giving me that you're also open to some more as well. So why is it so hard? And then I want to go from there and I want to look at two aspects of who Jesus is and how he helps us get discipline. And I'm going to look at Jesus the example and then Jesus the saviour. And what I want to suggest is that the Christian faith provides resources and ways of living a joyful, self-disciplined life which nothing else provides. So that's where we're going, okay? So in what sort of areas can we use self-discipline? First, I want to suggest is your and my spiritual life, the growth of a relationship with God. Most of us talk about or think about the high points of our spiritual life. If you knew me at some point, I would have told you about how when I was 18 years old or 17 years old, in fact, I had an experience of the Holy Spirit that totally changed my life. It was like, it was a high point. And then there were other points in years later where I could tell of other high points. And we tend to think if we want to grow as Christians then it's all about the high points or it's all about the conferences that you go to or the speakers you hear. I want to suggest that it's actually much more about the journey between the high points than it is the high points. It's much more about how I live day to day between those peaks than anything else. I've had people who've come to me at the end of a conference in floods of tears saying, this has changed my life. In three months' time, they've disappeared entirely. It hadn't changed their life. It had given them a moment, but unless you build on those moments with consistency, then it doesn't tend to lead to change. So I want to suggest that actually self-discipline helps us with the really important habits, like gathering together to worship. That is, an inc- for me, that is an incredibly important thing. I spend time most days, not every day, but most days in prayer or worship or Bible study. But when I come into this sort of setting and worship together, it does me good in a way that doing it by myself doesn't. I need you. And I need to be able to worship with you. And I need to be to need to be able to sit and to listen to people teach and preach because it does things in my heart. You might say, well, <laughs> you, you, may, you may feel at the end of today, that was a really lousy sermon. David, you said it's, it's good to come to church. That didn't do me any good at all. Well, I'm not talking about the one-offs. I'm talking about the habit. And sometimes one-offs do good, sometimes not. The point is more where it becomes a habitual thing. So I'm here and I'm here, and I'm here, and it builds and it shapes my life, just as we're bombarded by so many different things. I do not want to live as a consumer, as, you know, the great majority of people in London do, but I know that if I'm going to live differently, I have to literally live differently, and I have to come and I have to worship together. It's just one example. To pray regularly, how do I find a way in my crazy busy life How do I find a way of fitting prayer in on a regular basis? How can I live so that I can read the Bible often enough so it starts to shape the way that I think? Those are the sort of disciplines that help shape our spiritual life. Self-discipline helps us grow close to God and then to stay close to God as well. But it's not just spiritual life. Uh, Let uh, let me suggest uh, relationships or friendships. Friendships. Somebody gave me a metaphor some time ago now for relationships, which I've thought of ever since, and it's the emotional bank account. Simply put, it is this. You are either in credit or debit in every relationship in your life. You're either in credit or debit in every relationship in your life. In the relationships where you have invested, where you've given time, energy, and care, then those people's hearts will be full. They are well disposed towards you. You've got credit. If you need help, you can ask and take it. But there are other people who are, you're in debit to. Maybe those that you've asked so many times but not given to, or relationships where I've been careless or lacked attentiveness. Now, there are some relationships when we meet, it's just fantastic. You don't have to exercise self-discipline at all. It's just fun. It's just easy. You just laugh a lot. You just want to be with them. Even those relationships, at some point, if they're to become long, uh, long-term friendships, require self-discipline. I met with a, a guy recently. I guess he, I, could, I would call him a friend. He's not a close friend. I've not seen him for quite some time. We met for tea, and we had lots to talk about. I was looking forward to it. But at the end, after it had finished, I was left with this sense of dis-ease, this sense it wasn't quite what I'd wanted it to be. And I was reflecting back on what had happened, and there'd been several times during the conversation where I had tried to share something that really matters to me, and the other guy had talked over me. He'd not listened. Then, at the end of our time, he was so eager to get out and get on to the next thing that he didn't even think about checking that I was happy to pay for the drinks. Now, I realize I'm at great risk of appearing a total skinflint at this point in time. I was delighted to cover the cost of the drinks, but somehow, as silly as it sounds, it would have just made a difference if he'd checked in. In other words, Although well meaningfully, a lack of, I think, attentiveness or self-discipline meant that there was a withdrawal in our relationship. And do you know the thing that bothered me most about it? I know that sometimes I do that to others. And so relationships require care. They require self-discipline if they are to prosper. Spiritual life, relational life, money management. I'm going to make three statements now, and I think everyone in the room will agree with all three. Statement number one, it is wise not to spend more than you get. Who would agree with that? All right. Pretty much everyone, and I'm sort of guessing some of you just didn't want to put your hands up. Second one, it is good to be generous, or it is good to give generously. Thirdly, it is good to save regularly. We all agree. Uh, s- spend less than you give, give generously spend less than you get, give generously, and save regularly, and yet, of course, we all know that all three of those are very hard to live out. Now you may say, yet, yeah, David, I live in London, and we 've been and that 's you know this is like the most expensive place. You may also say to me david i 've been working for a while, and we 've been hearing over the last few weeks. That, real, that wages have not increased in real terms in the last 10 years. How do you expect me to live that way in this sort of environment? Now, all I can say is this, that if you find that you have to train in hard terrain, it makes you strong. In other words, you can do one of two things. You can jack out on the basis that it's just too hard. Or you can say, okay, it's tough, but actually that can bring the very best out of me. So I want to encourage us all in our money management to start out the way we go. Money management's about 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and we'll come back to some aspects of this. But believe me, believe the Bible, that if you will give yourself to these sorts of activities over a long term, you will benefit hugely as a result. Spiritualized, relational lives, our finances, our dreams. Some of us have got dreams. We want to change the world. I suspect we all want to change ourselves, or at least be changed. Now, it's all very well to have dreams, but when you've got a dream, there's something else that you need to do, and that is to act. You need to do something about it. Whilst I was on holiday this summer, I read a sentence that really stayed with me. It was this Vision without execution is humiliation. Vision without execution is humiliation. Now, this struck me because I'm often at the front casting vision. And I thought, got to make sure I follow through every day. Otherwise, it just sounds empty in the end. I learnt my first lessons in this have a dream, take action. Actually, when I was 13. When I was 13, I had the dream of rock star glory. And consequently, thanks, Dan. And consequently, you can see it, can't you? (laughs) No one one asked for your contribution at this point in time. (laughs) Wasn't expecting you to be here this afternoon. (laughs) And so I ditched piano lessons and I picked up the guitar. And one of the reasons that I picked up the guitar was that I'd been told that I could learn without having to have anyone give me lessons, and I hated ha- having lessons. I got one lesson. And in this one lesson, this is what the person told me, who uh, was a family member. They said, listen, if you practice half an hour a day for 365 days, you will be able to play at a basic level just about whatever you want. So I thought, huh, I'm going to do better than that. I thought, I'm going to do an hour a day for six months. L- LAUGHTER Looking back, my first thought now is how nice to have an hour free in every day in order to do that. And after six months, I had done exactly that, and I could play at a basic level pretty much anything I wanted. Now, the stadiums and the glory still await me. <laughs> but I did learn a really important lesson, which is give yourself to something over a significant period of time, and you will end up being able to do things that you weren't able to do or that you didn't think you could do otherwise. So four things. Let me just add one more very quickly. So we've said spiritual life, relational life, financial life, and our dreams. Number five, our thoughts. Our thoughts. The Bible has a huge amount to say about having discipline over how we think. One of the most powerful lessons that a relationship with God has taught me has been that I do not have to be a victim to what I find myself thinking or find myself feeling. And frankly, early in the morning, on a day that I'm not looking forward to, I'm profoundly grateful for that. The Bible makes it very clear that one of the things that happens in giving our life to Christ is we are free to think the things that we want to think. That, and we've not got time to develop all of that, but that is an incredibly powerful, wonderful thing that God does in our hearts. So there's some things, there's some areas where we could develop self-discipline. So why is it so hard? Why is self-discipline so hard? Let me give three suggestions. Uh, First is that so much of life is actually focused on short-term benefits. Uh, We have instant suppers, microwaves, fast food. Now, small supermarkets on almost every street corner so that we can get just what we want and cook it very fast. There's no waiting necessary. Slow cooking is something of a luxury rather than anything else. Instant suppers, we have instant entertainment. At one point in time, if you wanted to watch a television program, you had to actually be in the house at the time that it was on. (laughs) I know that sounds a really funny idea to most of you. Then came the video where you could actually record it. This was revolutionary. You didn't have to be in. Now, of course, you can download almost whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. And we all get a little hot under the collar if we find we can't do that. (laughs) It's instant entertainment. There is instant shopping. There's a certain company that promises you, if you live in London, they will deliver a huge number of different books within two hours if you will order them online and it looks like it won't be too long before we have drones flying overhead to deliver them even faster there is instant fame with multiple tv reality shows and even instant wealth with the lottery or with various game shows now we know some of these some of these are good some of these are fine we know that some of the you know instant fame instant wealth instant love we understand the chances of these things working out are absolutely minimal. One of the bookies actually calculated the chances of you winning the lottery. Do you know what it is? It's the same as the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge having 11 children who all win Olympic medals. That is the chance that anyone's got of winning the lottery. One in 145 million. Do you know there is more chance that you will date a supermodel, (laughs) I'm told one in 89 million, than you will win the lottery. And yet, whether it's the lottery or any of these instant things, they have an incredible alluring power, don't they? Because the instant is so much more attractive than the long-term. So, so much of life is short-term focused, but also hope is in short supply. Hope is in short supply. We've not got time. If, if we had, I could do a survey of the news in the last month or the last year and show how much, how little hope there is out there. And you, you may say to me, David, if you knew my life, we don't need to go to current affairs and leaders of certain nations to worry about hope. Right here, I am struggling to have any genuine sense of optimism about life. You know, the father of our faith, Abraham, was described like this. I love this verse in Romans chapter 4. Paul said, against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. It's an extraordinary thing. If If for you hope is in short supply, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to exercise discipline because unless you think there could be a great future, you don't build towards it incrementally. You just say, if I've not got any hope, then I'll just do what I, I'll do the instant now. And that is where I want to exhort you and encourage you: if you're if you're a believer in God and a follower of Jesus Christ, then you allow Him to put hope in your life. We should be the most hopeful people in in the city, in your office, in your university accommodation block not out of some sort of trivial oh it's going to be okay it's not case of our you know it's just it'll work out okay it's actually god is in charge and in control and as i follow him and as i live out there are good things i'm not we'll come to suffering in a minute but there are good things that will happen and that fills our hearts i think the other reason that we find self-discipline so hard is because it is painful and most of us would rather avoid pain. Some experts say that civilizations die because they get, they, uh, they get strangled on their luxuries. Civilizations, as they become wealthy, increase more, uh, develop more and more luxurious things, and everybody loves the luxuries and loves the comforts, and therefore increasingly avoids pain and suffering, which is essential to human growth, and human development it's a funny thought isn't it Scott Peck in his famous book The Road Less Travelled opened it with this sentence he said life is difficult and most people spend most of life trying to avoid that fact if you want to grow it will cost you something if you want to follow Jesus it will involve suffering if you want the abundant life it's going to cost you something That's why, one of the reasons we want to avoid self-discipline because it costs a lot. (coughs) So we've looked at some areas that we could attend to self-discipline and we've looked at why it's difficult. How do we therefore develop it? What can we do? And here's where I want to turn particularly to Jesus and I want to suggest Jesus as example and Jesus as saviour. Now Jesus is saviour but also if you want to work out how to live the good life, look at Jesus as your example and imitate him. Because he lived the most fantastic life. And it was actually full of joy, full of parties, and full of self-discipline. Now, we haven't got time to unwrap all of that, but let's just go to the place he showed the most self-discipline. He went to the cross and he stayed there. He didn't have to go. He could have backed out in the Garden of Gethsemane. He could have spoken to Pilate and got off. We're told in Matthew's Gospel that even when he is hanging on the cross, he could have called on angels, an army of angels, and they would have come and got him down from the cross. So how come he stayed? Not just fully God, but fully man, fully flesh and bone, fully you and me. Why did he stay? Here's what it says in Hebrews. Chapter 12, verse 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus endured the pain because there was joy the other side. Self-discipline is taking the pain knowing that the joy will come later. Self-discipline is delayed gratification it's saying i'll take the pain now because it's worth it to what is to come what joy did jesus envisage he envisaged envisaged the renewal of the whole world the salvation the whole coming whole every single one of us in this room new bodies worship father son and holy spirit worshiping he anticipated the extraordinary joy of that scene, and he said, it is worth it. So if you want to develop self-discipline in your life, then imitate Jesus by, ha- by understanding the joy on the other side of the pain. Now, if you're going to have joy on the other side of the pain, first of all, you need to be stretching for something worthwhile. Do not please... Be someone of small ambitions. If you want the easy life, you needn't listen to this sermon because you don't need self-discipline for the easy life. But if you want to do something worthwhile, if you want to be something worthwhile, then you need to have a vision of that so you say, no, that is worth it. And when that is worth it, the most basic of... Discomforts can be overcome. I was listening last weekend to the story of uh, President John Kennedy visiting NASA when he was elected in '63 or whenever it was. He said, "In this decade, we will get—we'll send a rocket to the moon." And when he visited NASA, obviously he had the whole sort of welcome delegation, and they welcomed him. And he came in, and he started walking along one of the corridors, and he came across a janitor, cleaner, and he. Greeted him and he said, What do you do here? And the janitor straightened up. He said, Mr. President, I help put a man on the moon. I thought, What a fantastic answer. Now, he can keep this place clean. He can work and make it to an incredibly high standard that reflects the levels of professionalism that are wanted right across NASA because he's not just thinking, I need to move that mark off the wall. He's saying, I keep the mark off the wall and I keep this sparkling because we are on a mission. To put a man on the moon what's your mission what are you living for what are you stretching for what's going to make it worth you developing self-discipline so you can say it's for the joy set before me that I'm prepared to endure the pain and once you've got that you then start making decisions ahead of time and that's one of, if you like, one of the secrets of self-discipline is not waiting for the moment and seeing what you fancy doing. We've had, uh, Stroud family have had a family birthday this weekend. We've been up in the northeast of England. It's been uh, Philippa's father's 82nd birthday. And uh, we've had a fantastic time. But he wanted to celebrate this last night, like 250, 300 miles, I don't know, just a long way from London. <laughs> I'm like, this is great, and I would love to be there, but I am preaching at 10 o'clock this morning. So I was preaching in Stockwell at 10 o'clock this morning. So I thought, how do I do this? So I worked out a way that I could get back in time, but it just involved my alarm clock going at a very, you know, extremely early this morning. So whilst I was working it out, before I said yes, I decided I'm going to do this, and when the alarm goes, I will get out of bed. I will not say hmm, how do I feel? (laughs) Because, ladies and gentlemen, I would have slept for a very long time if that had been the case. Now, it's a silly, trivial little example, but every one of you knows what that feels like. Probably every person in this room has caught an early morning flight where the night before they thought, I don't want to get up at that time, but at some point you decided it was worth it so you decided ahead of time I'm going to do this self discipline means deciding ahead of time decide ahead of time to be with God's people every week I, I watch people sometimes and they're like oh yeah I'll do this and I'll do that why don't I do this and then oh, oh well I can't get to church this week because I'm doing all those oh well I'll go next week and so it starts to slip and it's nice to say yes to that and that and that, but actually, probably for them, the thing that matters more in the end is a bright, burning spiritual life relationship with God, and it just disappears as a result. I pray most days because I decide before the day starts when I'm going to pray. Now, <laughs> I am not—you know—I don't want to give you the impression of total virtue. So, no, do, it doesn't always work out but it does more often than not because I've decided when beforehand and that makes a big difference. So Jesus as an example, he set his eyes on, the, on what's ahead and finally Jesus as saviour. Here's what Paul said when he wrote to Titus. <coughs> Thank you, Nate. For the grace of God has appeared. What's the grace of God? The grace of God is God's unmerited favour on your life. It's his total abandoned love for you, though it's totally undeserved. That's what the grace of God is, okay? So God's undeserved favor and love appeared, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, there's that word, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Now, sometimes people say, if you talk too much about the love of God, people will go and do whatever they want. Because they're like, oh, God loves me, so I can just go and do all sorts of things he disapproves of because he loves me. That's not actually how it works, and that's not what Paul has in mind here. Paul actually says, if you understand the love of God, then you will go, I want to follow you and love you. So it brings the best out of us as a result. So here's what the grace of God says. First of all, the grace of God says, you are loved without reservation. And because you're loved, with, if you wake up tomorrow morning confident that you are loved more than you ever dreamt that you could be, you will live better and live more joyfully (laughs) and even be a nicer person to be around than if you didn't otherwise. The grace of God says you're loved without reservation. The grace of God secondly says you can do it. You can do it. One of the great reasons that we don't exercise more self-discipline is that we consider ourselves weaklings. We've given up hope. We We feel the walls of our city are knocked down and that there is no way of rebuilding them. But the grace of God actually says you are powerful. The grace of God says you are powerful for you have resurrection life within you. You can say no to ungodliness. In fact, as Paul said, the grace of God helps him work harder than anyone else, for it gives such energy. Thirdly, the grace of God says, hey, if you fail, it's okay. If you fail, it's okay. I love this proverb. Though a righteous man fails seven times, he will get up. Some of us here would think the way to be a righteous man is never to fail. But actually, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says... If you fail and get up and trust him for righteousness, then you are righteous. So it's not about how often you fail, it's your response to failure. And this is a verse which says the same thing in opposite ways in the two halves of the sentence. So first of all, it says, uh, the righteous man falls seven times, he will get up. And then it says, the wicked man will stumble into ruin. And the picture is, here's the righteous man, he falls. But he says there's grace. So he gets up, and then there's the wicked man, and he stumbles, and he just thinks, ah, I hate myself, I hate this, it's never going to work. And so he then stumbles more, and we're told he stumbles into ruin. So the grace of God says, even when you fail, righteousness is available. And finally, the grace of God says there is healing available And that God is the God who rebuilds walls. If your city has broken walls, then you're in the right place. Because God is the rebuilder of broken walls. And he does it. We haven't got time to develop this. But three steps for that is that we acknowledge our responsibility. We ask for forgiveness and we receive new strength. And for some of us, the steps course, which is just starting three steps courses in different parts. Of, of London this, this autumn it is it's, it's the, the, the deal we have had over 200 people at Christchurch who have gone through this and many of them are saying my life has been changed as a result, not my whole life but one aspect, when you do steps you say here's the one thing I want to work on so I would like to encourage you to think about that I want to finish with a quote from an online blogger Nicholas Cole who's been read over 50 million times and he starts with the phrase, as a millennial. So some of you will really identify with that. Others of you, you'll be like, no, I'm just a bit young. Might be one or two of us who are able to say, we're slightly out of that age bracket. So this is a good opportunity for intergenerational learning, but here's the quote. (laughs) As a millennial, I am surrounded by so many peers who who all say the same thing. I want to do what I love. I want to quit my job. I want to travel. I want to work from my laptop anywhere. I want to be my own boss. I want to change the world. I want to do something great. I want to, I want to, I want to. If you truly want to, then here's what you need to do. When you finish this sentence, instead of pulling your phone out and reading one more quote on social media encouraging you to follow your dreams, turn your phone off and get to work. Discipline... He goes on to say, and being able to say no to the distractions of life is the differentiating factor between those that dream and those that make their dreams come true. I want to invite you this afternoon into the grace of God. I want to invite you to know that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are more powerful than you think and that it doesn't matter if you fail. But as we fix our eyes on the one that's gone before, and we fix our eyes on the joy that is set before us, so we learn to develop self-discipline in our lives as a result. Should we stand and we'll pray in Elizabeth, and uh, maybe you can come back to lead us. Now, we've got, we've got time just to sing uh, a couple of songs and, and time where we can also pray for one another as much as, uh, you know, as we want to. So I will want to encourage us just to now bask in the grace of God. Bask, what an invitation. Bask in the unmerited favor of God. It's not too bad, is it? 20 to 6 on a Sunday evening. Let's, I just want to pray. I want to ask for that sense of God's presence. And I want to invite you to do that and allow him to work deep in your heart in whatever way you will most benefit from. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness, and your love. We thank you for the grace of God that teaches us to say no to all ungodliness. And Heavenly Father, I want to invite your grace and your mercy to fill this room right now. like your tender goodness to rest upon us. And I want to pray, Father, we offer ourselves to you broken, needy, not as great as we'd like to be, but righteous because of your love. And we ask, come Holy Spirit of God, come dwell on us, come rest on us, that we may become all that we are meant to be. And we may be able to say that with what we've been given, we've done the best that we can. And with it, teach us self-discipline but not, Father, as some turgid rule and regulation, but as the joyful response to the love of God and his unmerited favor in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.